want to encourage you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn on your app if you want to do that. Um, your pastor has joined Club COVID and is enjoying all the uh, benefits and privileges of such. Uh, enjoying bull time. He's doing okay. He's just you know, a little sick this morning, and so he couldn't be with you, and so he called me. I'm his, I'm the, uh, <clears throat> I'm the elder Dylan, yeah, just kind of the classic, uh, the original. Yeah, any, any other good adjective you want to use? Uh, but uh, he's doing okay. He's just sick, you know. He gets sick, so he's home recovering. And called me Friday and asked me to stand in, which I was delighted to do. Uh, I want to. What I want to do is uh, look at Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, beginning of verse sixteen, going through the end of the chapter, uh, before we kind of launch into applications. To give you a little background. <clears throat> this is uh, a text that's written by the Apostle Paul. And if you read uh, the other letters in all of the New Testament, is a series of letters, uh, either written to individuals or written to congregations or churches. Uh, the, the church at Corinth was a problematic church. Maybe like some of you are problematic people, but you know, they were the ones that were really struggling with the essence of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Uh, kind of the way we would describe them is that they were jealous, they were contentious, they were divisive. Uh, there was a lot of posturing. Uh, there was tension between different ethnicities and, and especially tension between those who were kind of more, we, what we would say were wealthy and prosperous and those that were impoverished. And we'll see why in just a little while. And, you know, Paul is, is basically writing them and in, in saying, look, this in, in very simple terms, <clears throat> I want you to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it means to be both transformed and transformational in its essence. And he's, he's, he's trying to help them put down the distractions that are not only very destructive within the church uh, in relationships, but it's also very destructive in impeding the church from being effective in its culture. Because the gospel, the message that Christ brought is really twofold. Number one is it changes me and it changes the culture. And so we are transformed by Christ. And then we, we I was going to say we become transformers, but we don't become, you know, we don't become transformers. But uh, in essence, what Jesus said is we become salt and light. I mean, that's the intention of who we are as believers. So Paul's trying to help them rectify that. I, I like the old school, you know, kind of uh, imitation leather Bibles because I can write down, you know, notes and so forth. And lots of times when I'm studying something, you know, God will kind of give me some revelation and things I haven't seen before. And in this verse, I think it's very clear. He's saying, uh, folks, we need to keep it simple in our understanding of what our faith means to us in our life and what it means in our culture. So verse 16 uh, we'll just go through this and we'll do some application. From now on then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way. Now what, what Paul is talking about is that, is that when a person becomes a follower of Christ, there's a transformation of identity. There's an exchange. You need to understand that. He's saying that's key. You're not, you're not after you come to faith in Christ, you're not who you used to be. Yes, you've got, I mean, all the remnants are there. We're still rebellious and sinful in our nature. We're still who we are as our core, but it is the beginning of a process where we're transformed and we go on all of our lives being transformed by the power of God. He said, even if we've known Christ in a purely human way, and now yet we no longer know him like that. Now what he's saying is there were a lot of people who followed Jesus as an itinerant teacher. And while Jesus was alive, 
on planet Earth, before his crucifixion, uh, people would listen to Jesus and some of them would say, you know, this is extraordinary. What he's teaching is so contrary to the culture that we live in. Uh, we we want to know more. We like it. And then there were the miracles. And so, uh, you know, they, they would see the miracles. But then Jesus would not perform miracles on demand. Some of, some of them became disenchanted or disillusioned. Or, uh, so they couldn't buy into... They could buy into the good teacher thing, a lot of them, but they couldn't buy into the Messiah thing. Now, some of them did buy in. But what we know is that, you know, Jesus' brothers were some of those who didn't buy in until the, until the crucifixion and the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus was no longer an itinerant teacher. He was the resurrected king of glory. And so Paul is saying, you know, the, the identity of Jesus for a lot of us has changed. Now, Paul never knew Jesus. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee who persecuted the church, but he knew Jesus a after he was resurrected. So he, had, he said, we now know Jesus who he is. We thought he was just a good, a tiny teacher, and now we recognize he is the Son of God. He is the one who transforms humanity. He is the one who gives us hope. So that's what Paul is saying. There's, there's been an exchange of identity, and, and that, trans that, that changes to the point that that means that I now, as a follower of Christ, I see my identity has changed, and the way I look at you is that your identity has changed. So you're no longer just a neighbor. You're no longer just a colleague. Uh, you are, no matter, no matter how much you irritate me, you are a child of the king. And I've got to relate to you. No, you can pull for Duke. I may not like that. I may think you're crazy. Uh, you know, I may have a lot of thoughts, but it doesn't make any difference now because your identity to me is you are my brother and my sister in Christ. And that's that, that change for the Apostle Paul. We're talking about something that most of the American church have never experienced or understand. It is, it is a radical transformation to make a decision to follow Christ. So he goes on and he says, look, in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. So that's talking about transformed. You do not meet the Son of God. You do not meet the King of glory. You do not meet the God of the universe and walk away in yawn. When you encounter God, He changes you. That was my experience as a 19-year-old when I met Christ on a secular college campus and I was living my life in Partiesville, I guess. Rebellion against God, rebellion against my parents, part of a generation of rebellion, utter rebellion of everything that had come before us. We think it's something new. It's, it's, there's nothing new about it. Uh, I was in the generation that we watched the cities in America burn over race riots. And then we saw our fellow college students gunned down by the government on college campuses. Uh, we were the first generation that didn't look like our parents and our uh, parents look like their parents who look like their parents before their parents. And I can remember that argument about my, you know, from my mother saying, why do you have to change everything? Because we want to. You know, we wanted to be the different generation. And uh, I can remember, you know, it's, you know, I was the first one in my family to have long hair, blue jeans, and you know, tie-dye t-shirts, and we'd go to church, and every, all the guys had on uh, leisure suits, lime green leisure suits, and they played in Oregon, and I was listening to ZZ Top and Leonard Skinner, and, and didn't do it. And, you know, I just didn't do it. And of course, I was very judgmental about that generation until my generation uh, took over, and it turned out we were just as corrupt as they were. We were just as competent as now. Now there was a lot. I look back. My father, <coughs> B-17s in World War II. Uh, last night I was doing some little family history, and I found his casualty report. He was shot down. Now my dad's generation. We can say what we want to say about that generation, uh, but they went through a Great Depression and they marched off to war and fought the war, uh, World War II against tyranny, and they never whined and they never marched. I say, I can go either way. I can tell you, well, yeah, but they wore the leisure suits. I mean, <laughs> come on. What's wrong with these people? 
Stand up, sit down. Stand up and sit down. Uniformity. I mean, it was formalism, everything. My parents, when I was a kid, they went to the movies in a coat and tie and my mother in a dress. It was a different culture. You know, we kind of rebelled against that culture. There's, there's really nothing new in going on. And so that's how I went to the college campus. But see, what, what, what Paul is saying is when Christ comes into your life, there's a radical transformation that happens to you as an individual in verse 17. But he goes on, he says, <clears throat> now everything is from God. And this is the purpose of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what Paul is doing is he's enumerating or he's, he's being very specific about what the mission of Christ was. The mission of Christ, who was the king before he came to earth, he humbled himself for one purpose, and that is to reconcile you, God's objects of love, to God. So Jesus came to make things right with a rebellious generation, which every generation is, with the Father who loves his creation. So that was the, that was the something. That t Jesus didn't come as the king. He didn't march in with our conquering armies. He came, he humbled himself for one singular purpose, and that was the mission or the objective of reconciliation. Now Paul goes on he, after he tells us what the purpose of Jesus was. That is that in Christ, God was recon rec reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So what Paul is saying is the very same purpose that God has given to his son, he's now given to you. I mean, that's, that's, why, that's why God has redeemed us. Those of us who follow Christ, that's why Christ died for us, is so that you and I might take up the task of reconciliation. So, for whatever time God continues to give me breath in my lungs, my sole responsibility before God is to attempt by every measure and every means possible to be a force of reconciliation. Making things right between God and man, making things right between men, bringing people into the good news of the kingdom of God, which is substantially different than the culture that we currently live in, and really the culture that has existed since the beginning of time. <clears throat> he goes on, he says, he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, you can really see Paul's passion in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Now, this is really an amazing statement. I mean, Paul is basically saying, my singular purpose in life is to intercede between a God who loves humanity and a humanity who's rebelling and who has turned their backs on God. So whatever time I have in my life, everything has changed. Because personally, I've tasted the power of God in personal transformation. And now I want to be transformative in the culture where God has placed me. For, for many of you, that's, you know, here in America. You're going to live in America all your lives. You're, this culture is going to be your culture. My wife and I have lived overseas. We've served in different places. We're very familiar with what it means to uh, be in, live in other cultures. He goes on and he says, uh, or he said in that particular text also, he said that he's made us ambassadors. In verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors. So what Paul does is he establishes two things. If you're a note taker, you want to write something in your Bible, is, is he, he establishes your purpose and he establishes your identity as a Christian. Your purpose is, is to reconcile. That's it. Now you have a job, you have an occupation, you like to, whatever you like to do, you like to do those things. Those are all good things. They're not bad things. They're not evil things. But your, your ultimate purpose in your life for which God has redeemed you and created you as a Christian is you are to be a reconciler. And in other words, your, your responsibility is not to make things worse. It's to make them better. That, that's the responsibility of, of the follower of Christ. And primarily by reconciling, because we know that as hard as we try, we always fall short. But so what we desperately need as humans is we need the power of God to do in us what we cannot do in our own strength. We all have our personal battles, do we not? I mean, in church, can we be honest? 
We have our faults, we have our failures, we have our phobias, we have our weaknesses, and therefore, if we try hard. See, that was the message I got from church growing up. Now, the problems were probably with my ears, but the pro what I heard from church is, is Christians do this and they don't do that. Well, I wanted to do that, and I didn't want to do this. We call that moralism. It was always, you know, behave better, act better. Christians don't act that way. And I saw I, I didn't want to live that type of life. I didn't, I didn't understand that the gospel message was one of heart transformation. And it, and it took me getting to the bottom of the barrel before I realized how desperately I needed God. So I, I go to the university campus and uh, my rebellion. Now, I'd like to tell you I went there to get a good education. But no. I can remember that day my parents uh, drove me onto that college campus. And, uh, you know, my mother's crying. She's hugging her baby boy goodbye. And uh, they, they drive off, and I'm waving. But I felt like Braveheart on that horse in the movie. <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> and, and the party started. Drugs, alcohol, everything, running away from everything that I thought my parents, you know, generation represented. And I was going to experience freedom. Well, you know, there's only so much drunk you can do. <laughs> there's only so many drugs you can do because you, you know, become addicted. And we, we, we see the consequences of that type of lifestyle in our culture today. And, but let me tell you what happened. Is a, is a people like me all of a sudden became cross, uh, Christ followers on that college campus. And so some of those long-haired hippies, and they were still long-haired hippies, and people like me, they, they began to come to faith in Christ, and, and we began this philosophical argument about the veracity of the Bible and about all these different things, and, and I could argue philosophically, and I felt like I could, you know, hold my own against the sophomores and the juniors and the different college kids that I knew had come to faith in Christ. And so, but, but during those times when they were talking to me about Christ, what I noticed was that they were being transformed. You see, I knew them before. And now all of a sudden they come to faith in Christ. And where selfish ambition and arrogance had taken precedence in their life, all of a sudden I felt like that when I was around them, our, I was around people who were authentic and genuine and they loved me for who I was. There was no judgment about my lifestyle. They just kept telling me about there was a God in heaven who gave his son who died that I might experience his joy and his power in his life. So this argument goes on. I continue to live my life. The longer I live my life, the emptier it becomes. There comes a place in my life where I come to a crisis where I know that what they have, I won't, and I make a decision at 2 o'clock in the morning that I'm going to give my life to Christ. I, I walk across at 3 o'clock in the morning and knock on the door to one of the guys who'd been talking to me about Jesus. And, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I, I die now, but 3 o'clock in the morning as a college kid, it was nothing. That's, you know, you're just beginning. You know, I can remember my wife and I, when we were dating, we'd, we'd walk the campus all night long because we were in love and nothing could separate us. And we'd study all night and go to class and take tests. And man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so anyway, Jim, who'd been faithful in sharing the gospel with me, he gave me verse 17 and said, I want you to learn that verse about this transition that's going to happen in your life, about the transformation, about becoming a new creature. I, but before the next time I see you, I want you to marry. So I went across at 3, 3.30 in the morning, and I called my parents, and I said, Hey, Mom and Dad, I, I, I became a Christian tonight. Mother said, Well, you were baptized when you were six years old. I mean, what did I do wrong? And, you know, my Mama. Uh, and my daddy goes, Take, Give me the phone, Polly. Grabs the phone, he says, do you know Christians need to sleep at 3.30 in the morning? <laughs> but it was the beginning of a radical transformation. 
we were in this, this group at, at school where we would, we would go around and we'd study the Bible in our college dormitory rooms. And I remember, you know, we, my football team, we were the state champions and signed football scholarships. And, you know, when you're in school, it's all this tribalism, right? Do you remember that high school? And you had to find your group. If you didn't find your group, you were in trouble. We had all the groups. And I was the, I was the football player. And my first Bible study teacher was a, a black he was high school drum major. Now, there was no problem that he was black. The problem was he was in the band. <laughs> band people didn't hang out with football players. So all of a sudden, I, I, I began to see poor, rich, famous, not I mean, all different types, all the segmentations that I experienced as a young man growing up. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, in the church, in the body of Christ, they disappeared. They were gone. Everybody was part of something that was bigger as we were being transformed and we would go out in the campus and we would share our faith in Christ with other college students, some who would mock us, some who would listen to us, but many, many hundreds who eventually came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we were a part of almost a first century, these first four centuries gospel movement where both people were being transformed and the people were transforming the culture that they were living in. So after that, I graduated and joined a church. And I found out that the church was more about being an organization than it was being a movement. Now, folks, I've been a pastor for many years. In fact, Monday, after 45 years of continuous ministry, I retired. Now, I don't know who thought it was a great idea to retire in February because all you can do is paint rooms and clean house. But, uh, you know, what I've seen is my wife and I and your pastor, we, we, we were in a culture that was at civil war with one another. And people were killing their neighbors and atrocious, I mean, genocidal things that happened in that culture. So we, we got into this culture as missionaries right at the end of a civil war. And one of the things I knew is that Paul says we're ambassadors is that my job as a, as a Christian was not to go and represent the United States government. People many times around the world had wanted to talk to us about politics, but we never talked about politics because our objective was to talk about Jesus. And when we came into this culture, our neighbors on one side had been on part of the group that were murdering our neighbors on the other side and, and vice versa. And so all of a sudden, what we begin to see happen as we shared the gospel of Jesus Christ is we begin to see God work in demonstrable ways in that culture where people who hated one another begin to be reconciled to one another because they had met the king of glory and he had transformed their lives. So we saw an experience to some degree in that country and on that college campus what I've never seen in the church in America. See, the, the, church, the church is not about mildew on steeple, steeples and potholes and parking lots and shag carpet in the sanctuary. And this, the, the church in Corinth had it all wrong. And so Paul is writing to help them understand the significance of what it meant to have a changed identity and a changed purpose. This is point number one about being an ambassador. Ambassadors are in the culture, but they're not of the culture. Ambassadors are in the culture, but not of the culture. And let me kind of say this in a way that I hope you understand. I, I'm ready for the church to stop trying to be like America. You know, we're never going to be cool, not in our culture. You'll have to give up too much to be cool with our culture. I mean, our culture is toxic, it's filled with bitterness, it's filled with hatred. Uh, right now, it's an extremely difficult place for our young people in America to grow up because everything, every street corner is filled with someone that's shouting into their mind, darkness, 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 hatred, anger, vengeance, outrage. And so God has never called the church to be part of the culture. He's called us to live in this culture, but he's called us to be ambassadors in this culture. 
And ambassadors are aware of that they have a single priority, and it is to represent that one that has sent them, which in our case is God or Jesus himself. The word, the word church in Bible, when you think of the word church, and this is one of the things we learned overseas, if you were to get on a bus somewhere in Asia and you were to find out that someone was a, a believer and you'd say, ask a question, where do you go to church? They'd look back at you like you were crazy. Because if you had a church building, they'd burn it down. So there was no concept of we have a church that we drive up the mountain and we meet in this building and what happens in this building is church because they would meet in the forest, they would meet in warehouses, they would meet secretly in churches or in homes in different places. And what they understood is the church was nothing more than believers gathering together with other believers. And so the original word that was used in the Greek New Testament for church are two words that are compressed together. It's the word ek, which means out, to be thrown out or to cast out. And the other word is lesia, ekklesia. And that means a gathering. And in the case of the church, what Paul is saying is the identity is for you and I as Christians, as ambassadors, is we are the ones who have been called out. We're not like the world that we live in. We're not competing with the world that we're living. We're not even trying to transform the world in the way that they see transformation taking place politically or through power or whatever way or means that you see. We represent a different kingdom in our lives. We have a different purpose, and that purpose is reconciliation. So Paul is saying we have a new identity. We are ambassadors. We are the ecclesia. The second thing that we see in Paul's writing is that he's called us to a common identity. Now, you've heard this term probably before. Um, what is it? I'm, and I'm forget. Is it identity politics? Uh, in America, it seems that uh, the attempt by whomever is to divide us is in, into many subgroups as we possibly can so that we can be angry at one another and so that particular power groups can utilize your anger and your bitterness to further object or, or further to move forward their particular objective. And so what, what Paul is saying is, is we have now ob either obliterated or subjugated all of our identities for the new reality of who you are in Christ. And he says this in Galatians 3 uh, verse 28 in a way that's uh, very broad but is so radical as almost to be unfathomable in the first century. Listen to what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Nationalities have, no, we're in, we're in Rome here, folks. The church is spreading in, in the power where all the collective tribes and nations of the world are now coming to Rome and people are coming to faith in Christ and they're from Ethiopia and they're from what we would call Greece and they're from what we would call Germanic tribes and areas. And now all of a sudden, for the first time in human history, Babylon is being reversed. People hating each other just because they're different now in the church of Jesus Christ is changing. The church I grew up in, almost everybody was just alike. Same political affiliations, same opinions. But here, here in the first century, that's not the case. You're, you're sitting with people who had different worldviews than you had. But now their identity is not Jew or Greek. Their identity is that they're now a follower of Christ. He goes and he says, the slave or free. And probably the way that you and I would kind of talk about that is, is the ultra rich and those who have nothing. This was a problem in the church of Corinth. If you go back and you read the first part of the book of Corinth, you can see that the, the rich were lording it over the poor. And, and Paul was actually saying, no, you, know, you, you take the man who's impoverished and you get him the seat up front. 
You, you pay difference or deference to the person who is suffering and the person who's oppressed because your God who is in heaven, he recognizes their hurts and their wounds and their oppression and his objective is to reconcile them to himself. So as the church, you, you kind of put that aside now that you're highly educated and you're wealthy and you now are now one in Christ. He even goes uh, further and he says, there is now no male nor female in Christ. Now, Paul was not talking about gender neutrality. But in the first century, women were either the property of their fathers or the property of their husbands. And now what Paul is saying is in Christ, that's over. Now, that's fighting words for a lot of people. And what Paul is telling those men, that woman sitting next to you in that church service, she is a daughter of the king. You treat her as such. She is your co-equal in Christ. You and I cannot imagine, you and I cannot even begin to fathom the radicalness and the transformation that was taking place in the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. And I'm here to tell you, guys, you know what my responsibility was? I'm a senior strategist for missions mobilization for 46,000 churches in the U.S. Now, you shouldn't have to tell the church of Jesus Christ that it's not about what happens in here, it's about what happens out there. But they paid me good money to do that, and so I'm, I'm happy. But the reality is the reason they have paid me to do that is because the church has lost its mission and the church no longer knows its identity nor its purpose, especially in America. That's not true in China. That's not true in Africa. That's not true in many places in Latin America, but it's certainly become true here. So Paul, Paul is saying, look, all this radical transformation is happening and it needs to be happening and you need to understand why it's happening and be a part of it. This is the second thing that we see. Ambassadors live in fractured foreign cultures, yet are single-minded. You know, there were a lot of isms in the first century. Let me, let me give you some of the isms of the first century, some of the identifiable historical people groups, and see if you can identify some of them in America today. Now, I won't name names because that might make you mad, but we all have our propensities. We all have our opinions. But you, you can make the connection. The first group that we recognize are the Essenes. They were a group that were uh, competing for the hearts and the passions during the first century. Now, what the Essenes believed is bad days were coming. So what we need to do is we need to move to the country and store up food and provisions so that when culture falls apart, we will escape all the devastation. Now, interestingly enough, that the Essenes, the Essenes were right. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was wiped off, wiped off the face of the map by the Romans. In fact, uh, have you ever heard of the Qumran uh, caves and the, and the scrolls? Uh, we, we always thought for years, for thousands of years, we assumed that the Old Testament manuscript that we had was probably not accurate. And the reason we assumed that is, have you, do you remember the game? We just played this with our granddaughters around the table. One of the granddaughters would, would whisper a sentence into the ear of the next granddaughter, and they would whisper it all the way around till it got back to Papa. Then it was Papa's responsibility to verbalize what the last granddaughter said, and everybody laughed because it never sounded like what the first one said. So we assume that over thousands of years, the Old Testament, which all we had was the Latin Vulgate, which probably, you know, came from around 1100, something like that, that there'd been a lot of changes because some scribe would be, you know, you know changing uh, the book of Jeremiah, and he'd say, well, I don't like that. So I'll just change this a little bit here. And so he would change things. Well, what the, what the Essenes were co so convinced is that there was going to be such a bad time and the inner world was coming. They took all the old Hebraic text and they hid them in the Qumran caves of Israel, which we found in 1948. And lo and behold, it was exactly preserved in what we have in our Old Testament today. So the Essenes, their escapism brought us some good things. 
But the reality is, when Jesus was going around preaching, the Essenes would say, Jesus, don't you think? Don't you know? Don't you understand? And Jesus would just continue to go on and preach. And there, then there were the zealots. Now, we know this for a fact. Uh, Simon was a zealot. We think, some people think, and it's just a theory, that Judas was a zealot. Now, there's nothing historically that we can find to document that, but there, there is a theory that Judas had seen the power of Jesus, and Judas hated Rome. He hated the government that was in power. And so Judas figured if Jesus could raise the dead, that he could overthrow the Roman Empire. And so by forcing Jesus into this power play, that Jesus would respond when they came to arrest him by fighting back against Rome. Now, that's just a theory. There's nothing to prove that. But what we do know is the zealots were very active during their generation. And the zealots thought something like this. Israel used to be better than it is today. You ever had that thought before? You know, America, if you're older, I grew up in a community where nobody was ever shot where my daddy left the keys in the car when we went to Walmart because we didn't have any air conditioning, all the windows were open and there was no robberies, no thieves, nothing. So a lot of times you get older, you know, if you're an older part of that generation, you can look back and you can say, well, things were better. And so what, what, what the Zealots would say is, you know, under David and Solomon, things were better. What we need to do is we need to restore. They were what we would call nationalists. And so they, they had catches. Some of them were partisans. They would kill and ambush the Roman soldiers. You've got, you've got Jesus saying, no, if that Roman soldier makes you carry a sword in his shield for a mile, Jesus is saying, well, no, just pick it up and carry it for an extra mile. I mean, Jesus came to introduce a whole different kingdom. And so the zealots, the zealots who came to faith in Christ, they had to lay all that down. They had abandoned that because now they had a new identity in Christ. And the last two, you got to love, they were the Pharisees and they were the Essenes. Paul was a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees, a loose translation would be, they were the conservatives of the day. And in the conservatives, they had, they had kind of extremists and then they had the, you know, the mid-tier guys and a lot of the Pharisees were kind of what we call middle of the road and then others were very extreme. And then, then on the other side, you had the... the, the uh, Sadducees, and they were the liberals, and there were the liberals and the progressives. You had some who were more zealots, you know, on that side, uh, or more extremists than some in the middle. And so all of these people were competing for the hearts of the people during the first century, and Jesus walked past them all and called them to something different. He saw himself as an ambassador with a short period of time to accomplish the task of reconciling God and humanity. Now, Paul says our identity now as Christians is we've now taken up that task. You now, as a believer, you are placed here by God sovereignly in this culture for one singular purpose, and that is to shine the light and the hope and the glory of God in a dark and descending generation. That's the purpose of the church. And so, you know, I travel around, I'm around some people who get it, but for so many of our churches, they're immersed in so much of the culture that they've lost the message. They're immersed so much in the organization and maintaining the organization, they've lost the movement. They don't understand their identity as Christians, and they certainly don't understand their purpose. They don't understand why Christ went to the cross and what the whole mission of God is in this generation. So ambassadors live in a fractured foreign culture, and yet they're single-minded. And yet, you know, here we are today living in a fractured culture, foreign culture, with all different types of uh, competing uh, philosophical, uh, you know, voices competing into our minds, calling us to that persuasion or another persuasion. Now, each of these people who had come to faith in Christ, being ambassadors, they had their tribes, but they were able to change the world by keeping their focus on the main thing. This is how Paul would say to the Philippians, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. What Paul is saying, I've got the creds. I'm a Jew, born a Jew. I mean, my parents came over on the Mayflower. I mean, 
I mean, I've, I've, I've got it all lined up. And I, I, if I want to boast in this, I've done this, I've accomplished this, because I am a part of the Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the governing power in control at that time in Israel. But verse 7, this is what he says to the church, but whatever gain I have had, I have counted it as garbage for the sake of Christ. Paul says, whatever political affiliations or opinions that I formerly had as a non-believer, those things have gone in the garbage can because what is preeminent in my heart, what is preeminent in my mind is one thing, and that is his glory, the reconciliation of man and God. And Paul is telling the Corinthian church, if you're living for any other purpose, you're living for the wrong purpose. Either you don't understand what it means to be a follower of Christ and you've been deceived, or somehow you've been distracted into passions and things that God's not calling you to give your life to. The third point that I want to make is that ambassadors live to represent the one who sent them. There's many distractions in the world in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, talking about Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for whom the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Now, there, there are two things that will you know, keep us from understanding our identity and experiencing our purpose. One is sin, and the other is weight. You know, sin, besetting sins that just keep holding us back and we keep stumbling and we need the power of God at working in our lives to overcome that. But the other is weight. Now, I mean, is there anyone here, after watching the nightly news or reading your Apple news aggregate, you just get up and start singing with joy? So you've given up your birthright. When you come to Jesus, God puts a song in your heart. And whether you're Corey Ten Boom watching her sister being murdered by Nazi prisoners in one of the prison camps where the people were exterminated, who said that in those moments she worshiped God with a song of joy because she knew that God was still on the throne, even in her misery. See, in America, you're not going to get that. Unless your side wins. Unless you get what you want, unless your particular candidate wins whatever contention or whatever election, you know, you're just going to be miserable. And the result is, is all of us are miserable. But Jesus said for the passion and the mission that God had given him and for the joy that was before him, he ran the race. So God is calling the church in America to run that same race. We're ambassadors. We are to live our lives to represent the ones who has sent us. I want to close this morning by giving you two don'ts and two do's. Two don'ts and two do's. Number one is don't allow the isms of our culture to capture your passions. Let me put it in a prophetic way in love. If you're living your life on one of the isms that's currently gripping our country, you're wasting your life in God's time. You're wasting the identity that Jesus Christ died on the cross to give you as a cherished son or daughter of God. You're wasting the opportunity to be reconcilers. You're no longer part of the solution. You're now part of the problem. And the frightening thing is they know that you wear the label Christian. And when they see you, they see the darkness. And that's not why God has called the church out. He's called us to be light. He's called us to be the ones in the midst of the difficulties and the fires and the terrors of life to have a song in our hearts because we know the power and the joy of God. We know the end of the story. God wins. God wins. The dictators will fall. The unjust will bow their knee before the king of glory. The humble will reign. The meek will be the ones who rule the earth. 
It doesn't look that way. It has never looked that way, but that is the promise of the coming king. In darkness, we have peace. In darkness, we have hope. And we exist to share that with our fellow man who trudges forward looking for something that the world has nothing to offer. Don't allow the isms, and I'd admit it's difficult. I watch the news and my blood can boil. But I have to keep in my understanding and in my heart what my purpose and what my task is. Number two is don't exchange the temporal for the eternal. Don't waste your life. I can remember when I was a little kid sitting around with old people. You know, people of 40, 35, old people. And they'd be saying foolish things. Things that I knew as a third grader weren't true. They'd be saying foolish things like, oh, life is so fleeting. Life is so short. It just seems like life is just going by so fast. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm in the third grade. Mrs. Ogilvie is my teacher. It's Monday and Friday's never coming. Death comes. It's coming quicker than you think. Do not waste your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have one singular purpose. That is to be a part of the solution. To be a reconciler. To be a bridge builder. To be the man or the woman in the neighborhood who goes to the homes of those who genuinely disagree almost about everything and to pray and to cry and to meet their needs and love them into the kingdom of God, that is the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. If you're living for any other purpose, then you have missed your identity as an ambassador. And the last thing that I want to say that you do need to do is do be transformed. Christianity is not a philosophical belief. Christianity in its essence is not even a set of moral values, although we develop a sense of moral values based on what we see in Scripture. Christianity is the power of God when you come to faith in Christ for Him to produce His life in you. How do you know if you're a Christian this morning? Because there's always that tension between who you are, who he is, and becoming like him. You say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? What is the work of Jesus in my life? What is the transformative power of God? Now, in America, you might say, oh, in the name of Jesus, I claim that Lexus. But folks, that's, that's garbage. That's garbage. My wife's not here and I wear a mask because she has some critical illnesses in her life and I do my best to take care of her because I love her. Uh, but if it's health and wealth, we're all going to hell. That's not the power of God. God doesn't exist to give you the trinkets of this world. I want you to hear the power of God because everything in this statement is the opposite of who I am as a man. But this is everything that God began to give me on that day when I was 19 years of age at 2 o'clock in the morning when I got on my face and said, oh God, without you, it's impossible. This is the very same thing that on Monday morning when I get up tomorrow morning, this would be the very same thing that the power of God is working and doing in my heart and my life. And that is why I know that I am a Christian is because I can no longer tolerate who I am without him. And I so desire to be surrendered that like Paul, I would say, I die daily. Not that I might experience physical death, but that I might affect or experience the life of Christ in me. Galatians 5.22, this is what Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such, there just isn't any law. So if you want to know what Jesus is doing in your life today, that's it. He's replacing your turmoil with His peace. He's taking your discouragement and depression. He's giving you His joy. He's taking your impatience and through trial and tribulation, He's giving you His long-suffering and patience. He's exchanging, exchanging your self-centeredness for His gracious humility. Church, America needs desperately a lighthouse in the storm. Your neighbors need to see the hope that we cherish in Christ Jesus. Because if it's not in you, then where? Where will they see it? Where will they see the power of God? Where will they find hope? Where will they find peace? In the Democratic or Republican Party? In any movement or any ism of our generation? That are the same movements and the same isms and the same mistakes and the same potholes and the same dungeons and the same jail cells of every generation before us. But God, in the right time, sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived his life and died without sin, was crucified for our sin. And he resurrected on the third day so that we might have all of God in all of us. I don't want to live my life doing anything but plead with you. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. It is worth the life we live. Let's pray. Father, enough. I love this country. I hate what's happening to us. Oh, God, don't forgive America. Forgive us. Start with us. Let us repent of our cold-heartedness and our anger and our bitterness and our side-taking. Oh, God, would you raise up a generation of the church of Jesus Christ that look like Jesus. Peacemakers, humble men and women, gentle men and women, compassionate men and women, men and women who mourn over the brokenness of the world, who weep over children who have no food, over people who are oppressed, over the slaves and the ill and the prisoners. Oh, God, give us the heart of Jesus. Father, renew in us our task as ambassadors. Help us to understand our identity in Christ. Father, only you, only you can do that. Awaken your church. Awaken your church. Oh God, cleanse your church. Call us out, Father. Let us live peculiar lives. Let us be different in the generation that you've birthed us into. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that with all of our faults and all of our stumbling, they might see your grace so that a future generation might have hope. And I ask this in the sovereign, glorious name of the King who's coming again. In Christ's name I pray, amen, amen.